Welcome to episode 8 of Paths, the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives, often marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. Today's guest is John Duddy. John was a boxer with a professional record of 31 fights, 29 wins and 18 knockouts. He did most of his fighting in the US where he still lives today with his wife and childhood sweetheart Grania. His last fight was a loss to Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., who went on to be the WBC middleweight champion in 2010. Whilst in training camp for his next slated fight against fellow Irish boxer Andy Lee, also a future world champion, John's growing doubts about prolonging his boxing career crystallised and he retired with immediate effect. A few months later, on the very night he would have been fighting Andy Lee, he was instead standing on a stage in New York performing the role of a boxer in the play Kid Shamrock and beginning his acting career, rediscovering the buzz he felt as a seven-year-old in a boxing ring in Derry. Later, John would work and become friends with Robert De Niro, which I ask him all about, and John's new film, A Bend in the River, is currently being screened in festivals. When not acting, John pays the bills by moving furniture in New York. Join me to hear all about his amazing life story. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. As I say every episode, I need all the help I can get finding the most interesting stories possible and a huge thanks to Barry Dorsey for putting me in touch with John. Okay, over to John. You won't hear the usual how's it going for me at the beginning this week as we were in the middle of having a pre-interview chat when something really significant came up so we're just going to dive straight in i had just been telling john that i toured a play called observe the sons of ulster marching towards the Somme to his hometown Derry," and i was laughing about the fact that we got a pretty poor turnout because the play is all about fervent ulster unionists going to world war one and Derry is predominantly a catholic town so we pick up from there it's just that you know what it is? it's population and you see on the other side of the walls there we use where the millennium forum because just up the street from millennium forum inside the walls as well is the dairy playhouse right yeah and on the other side of that wall is the fountain and that is the that is you as soon as you cross through the gates it's blue white and red and there's mm. King Bully and murals everywhere. And, and it's just a little pocket of, like the, of the Protestant community on the dairy side where yeah. they've just been there for so long. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I never really grew up very you know, involved in the, the troubles or whatnot. Everybody was kind of Catholic where I grew up. And then with a the boxing, it doesn't matter if you were Protestant, Catholic, or Muslim or anything. It's, you no, know, we, we all got on with it. Like, but... Derry, for, for a show like that there, like that, that was that was gutsy. Derry is would be, I'd say, a very on the dairy side, like a very kind of cat dominant like Catholic city, you know. But uh yeah, yeah goes, just goes to hopefully it's getting better, you know. How long ago was that play, if you don't mind me asking? We did it twenty sixteen. 
Jesus, it's not that long ago. Yeah. I was actually back home around that time myself doing a play in the playhouse. Oh, no way. I believe. So it was for love. I was, I, was, I was only for a week. And then we went to Belfast and we were in uh, Dublin, Waterford, Galway and back in Dublin. So we, we were, were doing... Uh, go ahead. Sorry, we were doing a lot of the same places. We probably... It, was it around summertime? We probably crossed paths without knowing. I guarantee. Uh, it was, all right. It was. I. Uh, That's funny. Um, you, you mentioned there, and actually, I'm not sure if, if necessarily the interview started. Usually I do a kind of an intro and like say a bit about you, but you know, uh, you're, you're, you're a great talker, John. So I, I could easily see from the moment we started this call being the interview. But I actually wanted to ask you something. And it's probably a good moment to ask because we don't have to include this in the interview. Okay. Um, but, you know, you were saying that you didn't grow up to do with all the kind of political stuff for the troubles or anything. Yeah. But when I was doing a bit of research about you, I don't know if this is incorrect, but um, is it true that, that your uncle was killed on Bloody Sunday? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. My uncle Jackie, sure. Jackie, Jackie was, uh, Jackie's name's John Francis, hence my name. Yeah. Uh, my dad's big brother, but my dad was 11 when that happened, you know? Jesus. It just kind of, people, no, because people would talk, oh, your uncle, very sorry about that. No, no condolences. No, and I'm like going, my dad was 11. I was born eight years later, like, but still, I'm like, and it was never talked about. I mean, whenever we were growing up, like, it was never talked about. If it was, it was behind closed doors on their hush. Well, the kids were, we were put away on the road. It was never, you know, and if it was on, if it ever came on the TV, it was quickly turned over, you know? Right, right. So it was uh, like, uh, I don't know. I know I, I have uncles and family members or whatnot on, on, on both sides. Of my, you know, my parents' families that were involved, but like, you know, they were all, as I said, they would have been in their mid to late teens, you no, know, right at, at the middle of it all. As I say, my dad was 10, my mommy, was, or my dad was 11, my mommy was 10, you know, so they were just probably a wee bit too young, you know what I mean? Yeah, to really take it all in or... Well, the yeah. fact that how, how, how massive Bloody Sunday was, you know what I mean? Don't get me wrong, it was no picnic the way they grew up. Like, they, they grew up in the whole no-go area. And then after Bloody Sunday, then it, 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 no, it opened again. But sure, them ones walking to school and stuff like that, seeing the Brits and getting, them getting uh, searched and all that. No, that was just a common common way of life, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, the way the way I grew up was 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 a lot, lot less. I mean, in the, in the early 90s, so they bit the peace process in 94, but... But even there in the late eighties, early nineties, like no, we would have been stopped by the police and by the British Army. No, the British Army holding big machine guns, like what's in your bag, and you wearing a school uniform. And it happened yeah. that often. You get cocky, like I mean, if somebody pointed a gun at me now, I, I'd probably crap myself. Um, <laughs> but at that age, it happened that often. You were you were sort of numbed it, you know what I mean? And it was it was just a common way. It was like oh, there, there's it wasn't even like oh, they're the Brits. I was like, you just, no, you, you walked on like they weren't there, you know? Yeah. I wonder, so was, uh, you, you know, growing up with, you know, really intense stuff. And obviously there was personal tragedy that, that affected your family. I wonder about things like that. Do they make, because like people from Derry are known for being great crack. Uh, and, and, I, and I wonder when you're close to tragedy like that, does it make you appreciate life more? Does it make you uh, savor the good bits of life more? maybe than your average person i wouldn't i wouldn't be one day say all i know is for look there's a lot of things that, that, that there wasn't a lot of things talked about or things that were really important talked about you know 
Like even like yeah. look at home now, right now with suicide. What's the, what's the main defense against suicide? Talking. Yeah. It's not just it's not just the north, south, east, west. It, it's like we, where we come from, we don't talk about our feelings. You know what I mean? We, we don't. We're we're a fear. Hopefully, it, it's it's progressing a lot more. But when you were younger, you know, it was like. Why would you tell somebody your problems? Sure, they've got the same problems as you. Suck it up and get on with it, you know? And yeah. they think of what our parents came through and our grandparents. That was a much more, uh, that would have been much more the way than, than, than the way that I grew up, you know? I mean, like my, my parents would have been very open with me and we talked about a lot. No, we would have been talking about a lot of things, but then my dad wouldn't have told me a lot of stuff as well. That it wasn't that I got older, I would have questioned them about things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, the crack, they're, they're definitely one of the best places. And I think because maybe people have seen how bad it can get and, and tragedy and stuff like that, it's like you always, they always seem to find a, I don't know, the the silver lining or the no the bright side, the, the bright side of things. Things could be worse. But I always remember growing up with that. Like it was always, it always could be worse. You know, God yeah. forbid. I was had oh, it could be could be worse. I mean, like whenever I grew up, there, there was a a British Army uh, checkpoint barracks right on the border. Um, I think I was about 12, 11 or 12, and it was blew up, you know, and I remember us playing soccer, like, in the field and feeling like, wow, the field's shaking. Dear God, what mm-hmm. was that? You, you all run home and it's like, relax, calm down. There must have been something. Is everyone all right? No, like, it was, it was about two or three miles away, but you could still feel it. And then you find out then when you get older, my God, there was a man that loved and then around that area where we were from, that was in a car, that was made to get in a car, that was strapped under the car, and was told he'd drive here, and his wife and kids were held hostage. You know what I mean? It's like, what the fuck? You know? Yeah. You hear that stuff, and then, here, all you hear was, there, there the ball, go out and play. Where you go? You're too young to hear that stuff. Bang. Out you went, you know? And uh, it's, I know, it's, it's, I suppose we're, we're, we're talking about this. Like that, That's one of the things what, what I like about Colin Broderick, you know, and, and some of the projects that we work together. Wow. This, this is the, the plays and, writer and director that you worked with, yeah. The writer and director of Bent in the River, which we're having our first screening now. Uh, well, second screening, we have one with Belfast. That was turned into a virtual screening because the cinemas are all closed. This one is a virtual screening. Over here, Crackfest, Filmfest, uh, but it's not available in Ireland. It's only available here in the right. States, whatever, whatever way it's sorted out. But uh, what I like about Colin, like I've read, I've read his, uh, his first two books, uh, Orangutan, which is when he first came to America, and the second book's called That's That. And it's basically about him growing up in Northern Ireland, in Tyrone, and just about the things that, they, you know, that, that he grew up through and how, as an adult, looking back on it, you no, know, that was not normal. You know, it's like he knew people that were shot. He knew people that were blew up. He knew, he knew, no, the troubles happened, went on. But whenever you were living through it, it was kind of like, no, no, unless it affects you, you push that stuff away and you get on with it. You move on. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not happening, so to speak. And then you kind of realize, shit, it, it did happen. And so actually some, sometimes things happened that actually, that actually affected you a lot more than you probably let on about, you know? Yeah, for sure. And uh, to to go to go into your life, and just just to finally mention that, that um, your your uncle Jackie, who died on Bloody Sunday, that when I saw about him, the picture of him was him wearing boxing gloves. Yes, and he actually looked a lot like a lot like you. I thought, and um, uh, you say thank you. 
well, a bit, I think. There's a resemblance. Mm. And so he was obviously your dad's brother. And your yeah. dad your dad was a boxer too. Yeah, my dad would have been carrying Jackie's boxing gym or boxing bag to the, to the, to the club. So he would have been, do you know what I mean? He would have been, right. he would have been going with his big brother to the boxing club and my daddy wanted to be like Jackie, you know? So my dad was interested in boxing through Jackie. And unfortunately, when Jackie was gone, no, as I said, my dad played other sports, but boxing seemed to be the one thing that, uh, that he took to. And then my dad introduced me to boxing and it was the one thing that, that out of all the things I tried that I kind of took to. And, and then here, there we are. I ended up doing my thing. I've seen you say that you'd go into the gym and you'd kind of sit there and watch watch them spar and you know you would just be dying to get involved yourself. Aye, aye, whenever you know yourself when you're a when you're a Wayne, like you know, if you're watching cowboy movies and cowboy you want to be a cowboy, you want to be an Indian, you know what I mean? Or you want to be the soldier, or you want to be the you know, Rocky was pretty big in the eighties, you know, and there there was a big mural of Rocky uh and uh BA Baracus on the, the gym. The boxing club that my dad took took first took me to St Mary's, which is right in the heart of the Craigan. You know what I mean? And then you're seeing boys on there yeah. fighting and sparring and stuff like that. You know, and I used to be told sit there in the corner, kids. No, wait, bit, no, you should be seen and not heard. And then and then if I was getting a bit of a chief feet, he would he would take me over. If nobody was using the speed bag, he'd put the chair on the speed bag, tell me to stand up on it and show me how to have it. And I used to sit there for stand there for hours. Just trying to make that thing go like rock, the way Rocky done. <laughs> <laughs> Did you manage it? Oh yeah, I have a down pat now. It sounds like a, it sounds like a, it's a great set of drums. So it is. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you uh, first like kind of get into it properly? When did you first start training and sparring? Um, I had my first fight when I was seven. I was at a my daddy took me to a smoker to show me what a, a real a real boxing show was like, and I was in St Mary's Boxing Club. And there was like all the other gyms in Derry, they bring their boxers, they size them up and, you know, they put them in and like they were even smoking. It was 87, 86 or 87. Like, so they were like, it was, it was completely black with a one big light in the middle of the ring. And, and the advice, there was no head guards. The gloves now were a wee bit worse for wear, but it didn't matter. So when I landed, the trainer said to me, dad, there, all right, Maggie, hey, look, do you know of anybody such and such didn't turn up? And I said, dear God, no, I wouldn't know anybody to call. And he looked down at me and he said, here, what about you on? I mean, I know, no, you know what? He's but he's only seven. He's too young, and I'm sitting, going, no, no, no. I want to, I want to get on that. I want to get on. And the guy was a wee bit older than me, so he wasn't. I mean, I says, no, son, you're too young. I was like, no, oh, please, dad. I play. And he said, all right, all right, then I'll let you go on. And sure, I went on, and the onslaught didn't come out after the first round. That was my first experience getting under the ring, wearing boxing boots and shorts and a vest that weren't mine. I even had a mouthpiece that wasn't even mine too. Choose you the what you get away with <laughs> back in, you know. I remember standing in the middle of that ring just and uh and a completely smoky and all the eyes and the wee red butts of them all looking. And the referee come come to the center of the ring and the other young fellow had to come out and he was his head was down or whatnot. And and then the one in the red corner, John, they caught they actually called me Jackie Duddy. So they did. Jackie oh. Duddy and I, and I remember jumping up bad like no hey like even though the fight was stopped I still hearing your name no the name mentioned and I remember running back but the next day it was written on the I think it was a few days later it was written in the local diary journal and my daddy was like you know that's great son that's great but he but he says we knew the reporter fell up fairly well and he says look that's John John Duddy you know it's not Jackie and uh 
He says, are you sure? And he says, I know, no problem, because Jackie's name was John, and the only reason why they called him Jackie was because there was that many Johns running around Craigan, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but I, uh, so then, my dad says, no, he has to make it in his own, he's his own man, you know? Mm-hmm. So, that, that was whenever, uh, the first time I got in the ring, and then my daddy didn't take me back for three years. He says, because I was too young, he says, he says he had fr- he knew friends he had that were brilliant, but when they started too young, by the time they had 15, 16, they were bored of it, tired of it, and girls came onto the scene and drinking and stuff like that. And all. So he says, no, I'll bring you back when you're 10, and if you still want to do it, you can do it. And uh, and luckily, I, I came back. I, not luckily, I, I always wanted to do it. I went back and had a crack at it and was still doing it up, up there a while ago, you know? Yeah, and I, I heard you say in school, you were telling the teachers that you were going to be a boxer and that they were a bit skeptical. Ah, of course. Well, sure. I'm, it's like, it was just funny. It was going, what was it, high school? What age you in high school? 11, is it? 11 or 12 or something? And I remember the teacher saying, so son, what is it you want to be when you grow up? I says, I want to be a boxer. And I know, what, a boxer? I says, yes, a prof- Muhammad Ali, Barry McGuigan, boxer. I want to, okay, that's great. That's brilliant. And my mommy's sitting behind me and my daddy. I think my mommy was kind of, in her head like oh my god my dad's sitting going oh, this is great and the teacher was like or, well here look we can't put that down do you want to put down something else and I'm like well like what what about a carpenter no a plumber or an electrician or an ambulance I was like sir put down whatever you want I'm going to be a boxer <laughs> 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 you know do you think, um, I'm just thinking of, I actually last, in the last episode I spoke to uh, Mark Ward who played football and he played for, uh, you know, a bunch of premiership clubs yeah. and he kind of said something similar that he just knew he was going to be a footballer. He just had that and I asked him, he was dropped by Everton when he was 18 and I asked him if he thought, you know, what his options were to do anything else and he was, he was just like, just no. He just knew mm. he was going to be a footballer. And I'm nah. wondering, do you think that is, is that a common thread amongst professional athletes? Like you'd, you'd have to have that in order to be able to make it. Um, I find it, I find it very, uh, like I, I've read a lot about different athletes and people in different professions and how they get there. You know, and I'm always curious about how they find themselves to be there. And sport, is so, no, there's a small percentage of people when you're growing up as a kid, like even playing soccer, even their local gas stuff and whatnot, like they make the team. It's tough, like you know what I mean. There's only a small percentage that make it through. So that, like, the, I, and I don't know where the belief comes from because, but you have to have it. Yeah, it has to be there. You, you can't know. It can't be like, oh, well, I'm going to be a boxer, you know. But uh, you know, like I'm thinking that no, I'm doing this as well, and you know, maybe there is a few out there that could. That I don't know any that have like there has to be something that separates you and talent's one thing. Talent's great, but talent only gets you so far. It, it's and it's 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 the belief you need the determination. If you don't believe, nobody else will. Yeah, you know. So I'm curious. I'm actually really curious about what you just touched on there. When you were young, how did you realize that you had a talent that maybe could take you? into it being your career like what were the kind of what were the signals along the way to go maybe i'm pretty damn good at this i never had that thought i'm pretty damn good at it i always wanted to find out how good it was and i always wanted to be good at it Mm. um with a group of guys that i the boxing troop that i came up with from 
there was uh, Charlie Nash Jr., Charlie's son, Gerald Kern, which was Charlie's nephew. And there was a Christy O'Neill. And there was a few other boxers. And even in that pecking order, I, I was on the mix. I was never the best. And then whenever, you know, you won, I won my first national title when I was 15. And I won the Gaelic Games. And then, you know, and I was on the team. But even on that team, I wasn't the best. But it was there. I, I don't know what it was. I never, ever thought, like, even talented. Like, I never thought it was that talented. I, I just, I had determination. I just, I, I loved working. I loved working hard. So do and even right, right up through the seniors and stuff like that, there was always boys where I would sit and watch, going, "Dear God, hey, he just makes it look so damn easy." Some no, some people just have that. Like Kenny Egan, Kenny Egan is one of the probably the most naturally gifted fighters I've ever seen and sparred with and worked with. And now he's he's coaching fighters now too, like, but he was just effortless. You know, you know yourself in any craft, whether it's soccer or somebody. Let, no building a wall there's just some boys that are able to do it and you're able to go how did he get that so perfect you know yeah. some people just make it look a little easier that, that yeah. don't get me wrong i'm sure they they work damn hard at it and stuff like that there but you can work just as hard and never make it look as beautiful as what they did you know and Absolutely. i think just with my boxing i had a couple of performances where i was kind of like wow i no. I did what I did right there, but the majority of them, I was always criticizing myself. I was always pointing out the negative, always, like even watching fights now, I still can't find me, I can't find me, make myself watch them because all I sit and do is criticize, like going, dear God, that's useless. Look at the state of me. I'm awful. I'm very interested in boxing, but I'm not like a huge boxing fan. So when I yeah. ask you questions about it, it's totally from the perspective of an ignoramus, you know? No problem. But I'm just curious, what specifically would you criticize about your performances when you look at them? What, 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 what exactly, like technically, were you was not up to scratch in your opinion? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> my hands were too low. Mate, 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 mate. I never used my jab enough. I had my chin too high. I never sat down in my right hand. I never moved my head enough. Um, I took too many punches. I mean. Everything, the only one thing that I know, there's only one thing that I know 110% that was always covered, and that was my fitness. By God, I, I'm telling you, I, I, I trained like a lunatic. I mean, you could hit me with a sledgehammer, and if I was still standing, you were in for a long night. <laughs> you know, that's just, I was like, I was always made, no matter what, I could take anything thrown at me, but I don't know. I, I saw your fight, or I saw some of your fight against uh, Luis Ramon Campas, if that's how you pronounce it. Luis uh, Campos, that, that's one. That was kind of the, the first fight that kind of put me on the scene. Uh, one of the punches that I saw you take, it was just like, it just looked like a clean knockout punch. And mm. you just came straight back from it. It was like, and I think the crowd even went, ooh, you know, at that. So yeah, I mean, that amazes me as well as another question from kind of outside of boxing. Like I have a friend who I must mention because he's, he's a massive, he's an actor, but he, he likes to think of himself as a boxer. He does like white collar boxing. His name's Foxy. We, for a laugh, he like put one of the, one of the helmets on me and like just gave me a gentle little, tiny little bump on the head. And I was like, I'm out. I'm absolutely out that, you know, it was too much yeah. for me to take. So I can't imagine being hit 
full in the face by a professional boxer. I mean, ha- is that just a talent you're born with, or do you ha- how do you condition yourself to be able to take that punishment? Um, it's funny you never think about it whenever you're doing it. Like I, I never ever thought, oh, I can take a punch. You know, I never yet. I see you no. Know, I've seen some of my fights, and I'm like, well, why are you doing that for John? You're just letting them hit you. You know. So, uh, but uh, it's a belief, belief in yourself. You know. Um, I think that's the one thing that comes down to it. Like, uh, there's nothing, and people always say, oh, it must be great landing a great shot, or it must be, you know, knocking somebody out. And, and I never found great satisfaction in doing that, to be honest with you. But there's nothing more terrifying than you hitting somebody with your best shot, and they turn right back and look in the eye, and you're going, oh my God, <laughs> it's going to be a long night. And your boy Campus did that. Uh, to me, I, I caught him some great shots too, and I'm like, this guy is going nowhere. But I was ready for it. I was, I was the old bull against the young bull, and I was like, there, there's a photograph after that fight where I'm standing. There's the belt on my shoulder. My two eyes are split wide open, and I've got, and the smile is from ear to ear. And I'm looking at me, going, I must have been off my head. And even <laughs> an interviewer, an interviewer, Duddy, Duddy. So what's your thoughts on the fight? What's your thoughts on the fight? No, I could say was happy days. I'm here. <laughs> you know? So to go to the the next stage of your journey, you're telling us that, you know, how you first got into it. Uh, am I right in thinking uh, you trained in the National Stadium in Dublin? I fought in the National Stadium in Dublin and I trained there whenever I made it under the Irish team. Yes. So that I would have been down there off South Circular Road quite a bit after I was 15, you know. I've heard it described. I remember somebody saying once that the only true center of excellence in Ireland is the National Boxing Stadium, because obviously wow. Ireland is so successful at boxing. What what did they do particularly? Was there, was there anything you noticed in there that was particularly good about the way they train boxers? Well, you, you understand that that is a building and the trainers and the fighters come from every other county in Ireland to go there. That's just where they have the national title fights. I mean, all oh, the... So it's not, a, it's not like a training I mean? centre. Well, they have the ring and the bags there and whatnot, but the knowledge that comes from that, usually the trainers come from, you know, whenever you were growing up, you, you'd been working with a trainer, one of the other trainers from, from all over. They're not just... You know, one time my dad would have been one of the trainers of the Irish team for a while. And I mean, Billy Walsh was there for a long time. But where's Billy Walsh from? Wexford. You know, he was an Irish champion and stuff like that. And you would have been training there sporadically on and off. And then what happened was, was that they, they brought in the high performance program where you were able to go away and you were trained on weeks and you were finally getting uh, compensated financially if you were if you made the team. So I'd have been down in uh, Limerick. University had a, a fantastic high performance program down there. I believe the Irish rugby team was the first sports team that went through this program. And then they got the boxers involved. And and then I think we were kind of the guinea pigs of it all. And then for like as you say, the last 20 years, Irish boxing has just excelled in all international events and stuff like that there. But a lot of that's got to do with the the love and passion of boxing that's all over Ireland. You know what I mean? You no, know, from from Cork the whole way up the up the dairy. I mean, all them different uh, trainers that, that all come there and all put on their their uh, their bit of 
knowledge and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Between, between your young days and then your move to America, what was the kind of, what was the transition there? What were the kind of moments that brought you there? I, uh, I just, uh, I went, I fought in the Europeans and got beaten the first fight. So it was, the fight was stopped because of the 15 point rule. And I was just like, you know what? I've sacrificed too much of my, my time, my work. I was living with my dad and, you know, I wasn't earning that much money. And, uh, I was like, and I had already fought in America a few times. And even as a, a young fella, I always wanted to go to, if I was going to turn pro, I was going to America. I wasn't going to England. And I just had an opportunity to come up, uh, i say around 2001, 2002, to, to come out and check it out and maybe think about moving there. And I jumped at it. So I didn't. basically, the rest, is, the rest is history, you know. And how did, what was it like when you arrived in America? I gather you arrived kind of like mean in business and wanting to get straight into working. Yeah, well, as I say, I, I had been to America a few times already with, with a boxing. And uh, I had seen New York before when I was 13, like in Boston and places like that there. And uh, so when I was coming over this time, I, I was basically, it was just for business. I, I was like, I want to come over, find out if I can do this. And if I can, I'll see how far I can go. And uh I was lucky. Went to Gleason's gym. You know that just have to Google Gleason's gym. That's been been around since the, near enough the beginning of boxing here in New York. You know all the greats came through at one stage. Um, the New York Golden Gloves, which is a very famous tournament where all like Sugar Ray Robinson and all all the uh, all, all the greats of New York basically boxed and, and come through, and a lot of them went on to be world champions and stuff like that. So, uh, I it was for me what moving moving here it was like walking around a museum with a pulse you know <laughs> and around them different uh, boxing boxing uh, clubs and uh, the, the different uh, fight arenas that I was at and seeing people that I had been like oh my god like I, I watched you no know, I ran Barclays I watched him knock out Tommy Hearns back in the 80s and you had Emil Griffith Emil Griffiths oh, God rest him now like but he was a world champion back in the 50s you know he yeah. fought Carlos Monzon and people like that there, and I was like, "Oh my, this is this is this is help. This is this is this is this is home," you know. <laughs> yeah. And your first fight was pretty soon. It was like a, a matter of months from landing. Is that right? It was. I landed in February and I had a fight in September. So I did my first pro fight in uh, two thousand September two thousand three. Jimmy's Bronx Cafe, and uh, because. The Golden Gloves happened around February, March here, and and I just finished with the All Irelands at, at home and stuff like that there, and uh, they were like, oh well, wait a year and you go to the Golden Gloves, and I was like, well, how much does that pay? And they were like, well, it's nothing, it's it's amateurs, but you know, you could be American number one and whatnot. And I says, well, I was Irish number one already, and I can't box for America because I'm Irish, and I want to get paid, so. No, I'm going professional. No, I boxed in one tournament called the Metros. Just they, no, it's like, uh, well, you have to do, you no, know, show something. They show what you can do. And it was another a, a amateur tournament in, in Gleason's. It was like the beginning of the, the stepping stones. They get to the Nationals or stuff like that. I won that. And then they were like, okay, then we'll, we'll, we'll go pro. And I was like, happy days. And that was Terry Rashid and Jimmy's Bronx Cafe. Yeah. <laughs> That was a that was some crime. Was was so what was amazing about it was very serendipitous because it's on Fordham Road and Fordham Roads and that uh, couple of it's one of them great songs. My head's escaping me now, but uh, 
the, the arena, the, the, the main event was a guy called Paul Malinagi. Paul Malinagi did very well in the pro game. And, uh, but it was very early in his career. And I was on like second or third fight. But the announcer mentions my name, Ireland's John Dolly, and the place goes mad. <laughs> and, and they were all wondering, who the hell is this guy? But they didn't realise that Fordham Road and just up, up a few exits away is McLean Avenue in Katona. It's like Little Ireland. Well, in the local paper, it said that there was an Irish Yonfla fighting. Well, someone got a couple of buses and they all landed down. And my first pro fighting, my, my teammate at the time with the Irish team was James Moore. How, how many's dad was over for a wedding? They were at the fight as well. And then my, my uh, father-in-law, who never, ever went to a boxing match before, he, he was over looking to surprise Gronje. He happened to be there. And it was like, all of a sudden, this this no, this is my first pro fight. No headguard, no vest. This is great. And then whenever it was over, it was a first-round knockout, and I won. I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing all these faces. And I'm going, I know these people. How the hell did I? <laughs> Where did they? How did they know about this? And, and that was kind of the start of it, you know? Yeah, and... I. I just so the listener is aware, you had a, a brilliant record over the course of your professional career. Am I right in saying you had 29 victories, 18 knockouts, and two losses? Is that right? Yes, that's it. Um, and if you look through John's like list of fights, especially for ages, it's just him winning all of them and knocking out all these lads nearly all the time, um, and usually in the first round. Did that take you by surprise, that were you expecting it to be a bit harder than that or you know that you were knocking all these guys oh, it out was, it was it was hard it was all hard because it's them that's a nice record you know but uh the many sore heads and busted noses and a gym the many sparring sessions and stuff like that there i mean that, that that's one of the reasons why i ended up that's why i stopped because i i, I was just totally disillusioned with like wanting to go away. like i used to remember at the beginning going away in training camp that was a dream going away up to the mountains in Pennsylvania, having a training camp where your sparring partners and your trainer there. And, you know, you live up there, you're away out of, out, of, out of the city, New York City, up in the mountains. You're you're not chopping down trees. Like, well, that's, no, that's a saying. You're up there <laughs> chopping wood, you know what I mean? You're up running in the morning, the deer and all that stuff. And I used to love that. And then after a while, you no, know, people the people be like, oh, it's like a holiday camp up there. Yeah, it's like a holiday camp. You get punched in the face nearly every day, you know? People yeah. forget that, and uh, sometimes in a gym, uh, expect or when you're when when you get when you get there or whatever, people go like I was the man. It was my training camp and stuff like that. But but no, you're entitled to your bad days. And there were some days I was coming out thinking out of training sessions, like going, "What am I doing here? This is oh my god, my head sore, everything." You know what I mean? And mm. it's a uh, that kind of stuff, it wasn't as loud at the beginning, but then as I was getting a little older, all of a sudden I started hearing this voice that I never heard before, like, what? What's he, what's he on about? I'll be grand. And then, then all of a sudden it was just like, no, I have to start listening to this. This is, he's right. You know, maybe it's not worth it. The paychecks aren't getting any bigger. It's, why am I doing this? It's, it's not, I'm not happy. Why? You know, yeah. uh, all of a sudden I ran its course and people were like, wow, I was 31. Wow, you were young. And I'm like, well, when you consider I was boxing consistently from, from when I was 10 years of age, you know, that, that's that's long enough, I think. <laughs> you know years. what I mean? Like, yeah. That's a lot of punches in the heads, you know? Yeah. I, I want to get to that because, uh, as you know, th this podcast is all about kind of 
big changes like that in people's lives. So we'll, we're, I definitely want to ask you all about that kind of moment no and that transition. But just before that, um, I'm curious to a few more things about your boxing career. W one is like that world that you describe and, you know, as you being being punched in the face, as you say, like something that strikes me is that to most people who aren't big boxing fans, what we think of is, you know, the big glamour fights, the, the Fury Joshua stuff. And the, these guys you know make millions of dollars and fight like once a year but there's obviously a world of boxing where guys are fighting really regularly for much less money and that makes up the vast majority of boxers lives i guess yeah um, and i saw and actually i'm kind of glad that i i don't remember his name because i don't mean the guy any disrespect but i saw one of the guys that you fought against in an interview and it struck me that like he was quite a young man but like he had quite kind of slurred speech and and you could kind of you kind of felt like the the game had taken its toll on him you know yeah um so i'm just curious for you could you describe that kind of world a bit the world that most people don't know about of of that level of boxing yeah well it's like i reckon there's a lot of similarities with any walk of life business or whatnot at, at a certain level you know what i mean like we all hear about the guys earning the millions you know but there's probably 90 percent or even more than that that aren't earning the the big big bucks you know and uh you know like there, there was always a, a expression of oh, the journeyman there was a guy that would go around it and it, it, oh, basically a journeyman was somebody that was talented enough to take your fighter they find out if your fighter was any good but not good enough they beat him you know, they sort of, someone with experience that be able to go their rounds and stuff like that there. But in doing that, you know, you still have to prepare yourself. And and, 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 and when you're preparing yourself, you, you know, you're sparring. And when you're sparring, you're, no, you're getting punched. And it's it just, I, I don't know, me talking about it now, I, I remember kind of thinking, going, wow, where was my mind whenever I was doing all that? I, I never thought like this, you know. And I suppose you can't because you wouldn't do it, mm -hmm. you know. And then, you know, like, even when I went in the Gleason's, Gleason's gym, you know, like, I ran Barkley, knocked out Tommy Hearns twice, I think. Tommy Hearns was a huge fighter in the 80s. He won five uh, world champion, world title belts at five different wits. Same as Sugar Ray Leonard and stuff like that there. You know, like, I've met Sugar Ray Leonard, and he was, like, the golden boy in the 80s. And he's got all these marbles together. He's clean cut. He's very talkative. It was an honor meeting him. I, I looked up to him as a fan. And, uh, Got a photograph with him. I'm like, this is brilliant. And then I met Tommy Hearns, and Tommy Hearns is you no know, slurry, slurry speech. And I'm like, oh my God, he was just as he was just as huge, just as big as Sugar Leonard, you know. And I met Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier was living above the gym in Philadelphia. And I'm really? like, Joe Frazier mm. beat Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And was had two more amazing fights after with him. And I'm like, oh no, there's 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 that side that I think we all love to see the you no know, like as you say the, the 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 guy that comes from nothing and makes it big, you know, but it's a short it's a short shelf life boxing, you know, and, and the biblically make that enough money to really take care of you for the rest of your life doesn't happen that often, you know. And yeah. uh you no, know, and then there's a lot of guys that you still meet that are doing well and they're trainers, you know. And, and they're basically, and a lot of them aren't even training fighters. They're, they're training regular people. They're training people that want to come and get fit and punch a bag and, and do a bit of sparring and stuff like that there. And that's one of the reasons what, what I loved about boxing. That side of it's fantastic. The, the fighting side of it with the money, 
you know, yeah. it's a, I don't know, that, 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 there's a few fighters and there are a few people that have coached over the years and stuff like that there. And one, I, I can't remember them all off word for word, but one of the things I noticed was, I've said, I've said it been interviewed as well, was I says one of the things in all the fights that I had, and I had main events, and Ireland and then Dublin, you no know, Belfast and New York City and stuff like that. There, like you know, and on paper that sounds great, but I'm still the last to get paid. Hmm. I'm the last guy that deposits his check because all of a sudden you start to realize, well, if you're the main event, they're not paying you, you're paying them because everyone's theirs. They see you, you know, and it's like, wow, really. Uh, it's like holy shit! There you go. There's me thinking I was getting paid. Do you mean in the sense that you're you're paying kind of with your with your body and, and... you're paying with your body and with your mind? But you're also the, the worst expression I ever heard said to me was someone told me they made me, they made me who I was. They took me to the garden. We made you. You wouldn't be nothing if it wasn't for us. Mm. And it was neither my mother or my father, or <laughs> or a trainer for that matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a manager that says he made me. And I says, well, I had 57 stitches in my face after that Yuri Boy campus fight. I says, how much of that did you earn? Mm. Yeah. You know? I got, I've heard you talk about this for, for any listener. Listen, there, there was, um, you know, like a, a dispute between you and your management. And um, I gather you know, to do with money and stuff like that. And, and there was a, there was a settlement out of court and I gather you don't like to talk in too much detail about like kind of the money side of things. Yeah. Um, well, do you, but, go ahead. Well, I, I just, um, what, how do you reflect on that whole thing now without trying too much? No, you know what, to be honest with you. And I, I think for, for many years, no, straight after it, that was one of the first siren steps in, in the whole the illusion I was living on as being a pro fighter. No, I was loving the dream. And then the reality is much different from that. That was kind of the first real sort of kick for me. And But I, there's a lot for myself to be blamed on that too. Like in all the meetings and in all the discussions about my career and stuff like that, I was invited to them meetings. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Everyone said, well, you know, you're too busy fighting. No, you get fucked, get ready and win the fight. I'm like, yeah, but now in, in this modern age, I have to know the other side as well. And a lot of fighters have done that. A lot of and you've seen them, you know, where they're getting their their you no, know, their up and comings like look at Mayweather, like he's the creme de la creme, but at the moment like he's you know, there's he's earning before ever anybody else does, and rightly so. The man's earned it, you know what I mean? He he was he was a three or four world titled holder and he still wasn't making what everyone was thinking he should. And then he, he made that change and got involved and got himself educated or got the right people educated around him and made sure that the dealings, the dealings outside the ring are, are just as important, if not more important than what happens in the ring, you know? And yeah. uh, I think that, that for me, that that's uh, them meetings that I was at, I should have went. I should have, if I had a dedicated 20%, 5% or any, just find out that financial stuff, just, even be there and listen and be aware and find and realize that this is a part of the business, you know, mm. thinking that, look, I'll go on, I'll train, I'll stay healthy and I win. It's all good. You know, that, yeah. 
Um, before, because uh, you know, we've got your your acting career to talk about as well. But before doing that, like we've we've touched on some of the kind of darker sides of boxing, but I'd like to, you know, touch upon some of your better moments. Uh, uh, like you fought in Madison Square Garden nine yeah. times. Yes, nine. Uh, four main events. And I fought uh, on the undercard of some of the biggest fights between 2003 and 2010. So I did. Um, it was basically, the, I was referred to as my home for a while, not by me, but by a lot of people. Oh, that's Duddy's home, Madison Square Garden. And even now, walking around, like I work, I move furniture now and then, you know, I work on a moving company whenever, uh, whenever I have to. <laughs> Yeah, I believe you me, I would rather be doing other things, but you know, you have to you have to pay the bills. But like some of the supers and stuff like that, and the many times people have come, hey, oh man, yeah, you you look like that Irish guy, that fighter. And I'm like, Yeah, who he's ah, what's his name? Uh, D- Dudley, and I'm like, uh, Dudley, <laughs> oh yeah, Dudley, that's it. Yeah, how you doing? Nice to meet you. What the hell are you doing here, man? I'm like, Well, I'm moving your furniture. <laughs> 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 Get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, no, sometimes it's good because it's like, look, hey, we need, we, uh, they don't call it a loft here. They call it an elevator. You know, I'm like, so yeah, is there any yeah. chance? Can we get the elevator blocked off? Well, I said, not a problem, Duddy. My God, it's John Duddy. Hey, can I get a photograph? <laughs> no problem. Well, that, that does seem important, doesn't it? Because like, I think we're, we're naturally built to take our achievements for granted sometimes. You know, I would think about that. I've, I've not done anything on the level of playing Madison Square Garden, but I've definitely got done things in acting that I'm proud of. Oh, very, well, I'm watching your movie later on today uh, that's on Prime. Wait, Timothy Hutton? Who oh, else yeah. is on it? Yeah. What do you call it? it? Like, it's something called green. Turning Green. Turning, Turning Green. Green. Yes. That I was, just found it my... this morning, you shitey. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> That was my uh, that was my first acting gig, actually. But, wow. Um, for anyone wow. listening. Hey, you, you were with some know heavy hitters there, man. Yeah, it was deadly. It was deadly. They were really uh, Timothy Hutton and Col- Alessandro Colomini and Colomini. Yeah, they were all Aye. really sound. There was a lot of really sound actors on that. But yeah, that, there and there's an example. You know, like I never think about that, and um, really, it was the odd time. But my point is just that it's a huge deal that you fought and won at Madison Square Garden so often. You know, and mm. uh, you know, I, I guess I, I hope you, I hope you feel that. You know, and and. Uh, appreciate that even though it's not like i say we're kind of built to take things for granted oh no do you know what i i, I get what you're saying and i you know what i think even as you say when we're doing it i, I wouldn't even say that i was taking it for granted i i i think we're built to look forward we're always moving forward because god forbid if you look back you miss an opportunity you know and mm. now that like let's see it's what 2000 there yeah, it's, it's just over 10 years now since i packed on the boxing so it is yeah. and uh only now I'm starting to get, you know what? Yeah, and it's like it's mad. I'm in New York City and I get random people like all of a sudden, hey, hey, is that are you? Are you John Tony? I'm like, I haven't fought in 10 years and they still remember me. I'm like, this is now MSG, Madison Square Garden, tell still show some of my fights and they show oh, the nice. fights that I had back home in Ireland. But people watch that stuff and they still remember. And it's been very humbling. I appreciate it now more, as I say, after time of what I've done. But I still like working hard and moving forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as I say, you no know, things that we take for granted when we're younger, you don't do it now. And I'm still young enough. I don't think I'm over the hill yet, like. But uh, there's a lot more fight left on me. It's just not in a boxing ring. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've heard you say that 
as opposed to acting, acting is a very kind of it can fe- it's a very kind of group oriented thing, whereas boxing could feel quite lonely. But yes. I remember I I heard you tell a story about um a rare occasion where you actually hung out with your opponent after the match. That's right. Yes. Who who was that? What opponent was that? It was a guy called Matt Vanda. So it was he's from Minnesota, and uh we we fought ten rounds in the garden and. We were staying at a hotel right across from this great Irish bar, Rosie O'Grady's, which I do I do not even know if it's still open yet through this whole pandemic thing. But it was like a it's a huge, well known. It's been around for years, you know. And uh, after the fight, like the last round of the fight, you hear the tapping. The only way you hear the tapping at the end of the round for the last ten seconds, and usually in the last round, you no, know, the fighter that's behind, you no, know, goes all out. Well. Mm. You hear the tapping on the on, no on, on the canvas, and Matt Vanda stops dead, puts his feet together, puts his arms out, and goes, "Give me a hug, Dotty." And I'm like, "Matt, did you put your?" I I I go to tap him in the stomach. I go, Matt, put your hands up. And he, and he goes, "Get away, Matt!" And he throws my hands away, and he gives me a hug. And he says to me in the air, "He says, me and you going for a pint of Guinness after this." <laughs> 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 and we went, we went to Rosie O'Grady's after. It was me, Matt. Uh, my dad and house trainer and we sat there and they even let us sit there a wee bit longer I think just chatting about everything and anything and most of it wasn't even about boxing it was brilliant so it was he's a, mm. he, he's a, he's a good he's a good man and then I've never seen him since you know what I mean ah it's a strange world yeah hopefully he will one day ah, maybe, I'm certain maybe he'll listen to this podcast randomly <laughs> Not uh, stranger things have happened yeah um yeah that sounds like a class moment and i think you said i think i heard you say like the crowd were kind of like all gathering around kind of, what what are they talking about you know and, I, and I, it was involved. it was fun. it wasn't brought to my attention until uh the next day a good friend of mine mark Ahun, me and mark mark Ahun's a dairy man we actually flew to new york together and mark used to uh travel with me when i was in training camps and stuff like that and when i was earning a wee bit more and he, he Mark to this day trains like he's fighting for the world title next week. He's just <laughs> he's just got that on him. And I know it's funny. He, he kinda he, he resembles like a Jason Statham type of looking fella, you know. He's got the you know the, the kind of baldy short hair and but he's 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 like a body on him like a gladiator, like you know, it's, it's I'm yeah. like, dear God, like Mark. And he's still like that to this day. But he was saying to me, he says, see you, he says last night. I says, What? He says, Dear God, he says, he says, it was so funny. He says, You four were engrossed in conversation. And anytime one of you has moved, the crowd would step back and want will it be me or Matt or they'd lean through the crowd, get the four pints again us, and come back and would sit down. And they says, and then you said, get back to conversation, and you'd hear the crowd go, oh, like <laughs> <laughs> and he says, You're completely oblivious, Dad. He says it was just it's just my, and everyone's getting closer and closer and closer just to see what are they talking about, what are they doing? Were they not beating each other up about an hour ago? No, it was more like three hours ago. They're probably not fit for anything <laughs> after that, you know. That's one of the good things about it. There's a lot of good good guys that we don't know. And that was another thing. A lot of opponents, I've seen some of my fights and I've it looks like I hurt. I it looks like I've hurt some some young fellas like and I'm like, my God, I never even so much. I probably seen him. Are you all right? Hope you're well. But that was it. Mm. I never seen the guy again. I mean, knocking somebody out like, like I don't know what that feels like. And 
and, and you know, and, and then when you see it, and when and, and I don't know, I, I don't know why I cringe. I cringe when I see it. If I, you know, when I actually strikes and you, you see them fall and lump, I don't know why. It just it terrifies me. I, I just, I, I hit having that feeling of, oh my God. But but back then, that was that was the game. That was, they were going to do it to me, you know. That made it all right. But now you just, as an adult looking back, I'm like, wow. You know, mm. dear God. It's just, it's some, so, some of it's brutal, you know. Just some of that stuff's brutal. And people, I just think people uh, forget that too much. So they do, you know. Yeah. And your last fight was against uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Yes, Jr. Um, who, because there's a his dad was a famous fighter as well, uh, more right. famous, I would say, uh, from my understanding. But he then went on to become world champion himself. Yes, and he defeated you, and that was your last fight. Yes, um, which makes me wonder: do do you feel that you could have been world champion? Um. I always thought it could have been, and I had. I don't get, there's that many belts out there now. Like I had uh, a belt that was a no WIBA world champion or whatnot. But when you look back, there was all our world champions that held that before they won, like the you know the main ones. Um, but I knew go, before going into that fight, and probably a few fights before, that little voice in my head that was kind of saying that, that all of a sudden changed from being, I want to be a world champion. I want to find out how good I am. That, that little voice all of a sudden was saying, I don't care. I don't care about being a world champion. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know? And that was, that was roaring loud and clear leading up that fight. You know, I, I was already half out the, halfway out the door. And, and then uh, after that, like that was a big fight. There was big no televised that over here and back at home and stuff like that. And no, and I, I was still in a good mix because it was a good fight. I mean, it was a no. I know he won unanimously and stuff like that there, but I heard him a few. I heard him once or twice, I think. And uh, and then after that fight, there was a potential end for me and Andy Lee to fight each other. And Andy Lee and myself were like on no, we were like on parallel courses trying to get to the same goal as well. And and they coming from the same background. I had his was a pedigree more. He went to the Olympics and stuff like that. But I knew of Andy whenever we were training with Irish team down in Limerick at the at the high performance program. No, he was like what 16, 17, 18. He was just coming on and I was kind of just going out, you know. But I had the utmost respect for him and, and it would have been a it would have been some fight. But I was going to the gym and I had no nerves or no no and I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? And I'm like, if I can't get up for this fight, then I am truly and utterly finished, done. Yeah. And I think boxing, that's like a lot of things in, in life you shouldn't do when your heart's not on. Like, no, go, you earn the money. A lot, well, we do a lot of jobs that our heart's not on, it, but we don't put our life on the line, you know? And mm. boxing, if you're getting in there and you're, and you're already thinking of getting out, well, that's when you get hurt. That's, mm. that's, that's when... You, you hear people saying, oh, I went the one too, he went one too many, you know. Um, because as I said, even before that, my heart was already that voice in my head was already screaming at me. Look, before Chavez fight, even get out of it, get out of it. You're not this isn't this is you're done, you're finished, you know. And uh it was a big, big decision. Do you remember the day that you actually broke the news to your you know your camp and stuff? Ah, uh, it was it was it was around January twenty eighth. 
so it was because it was to be at St. Patrick's Day. The fight was to be up in the Mohican Sun Casino in Connecticut, I think, on St. Patrick's Day because I had a couple of big fights in the garden over the years, you know, the, and they called it Aaron Go Brawl and stuff like that. You know, the whole Irish thing the night before St. Patrick's Day, you know, get a great crowd at it and stuff. And I mean, having two Irish guys that were up in there, you know, media-wise, no one, like in the, the boxing circles, like you know, we were probably the two most famous Irish fighters at, at, you know, at that time, actively boxing, you know? Um, mm. It would have been, it would have been huge. Like, you know, it was my, it was my biggest payday. So it would have been, um, it was on HBO. I think it was pay-per-view. I mean, everything was all, it was, it was all like, just listening to me talking about it now, like it was all like, there, there it is. That's it. That's the, that's the, this is the goal. This is, you've been here a few times, but this one here might, will just take you over, you know, because I don't know. It was like that close. And, and the only thing that I had in my head was, if you won this, you're going to have to do it again. And I'm like, no chance. I'm not. And then I'm like, wow, why did I not feel the, the hunger, the, the, the burning? The, the tra- I didn't want to go up to training. My training camp before I went, they fought, fight Chavez. I came down from the mountains, came back to New York. I says I'm not, I'm not, I'm tired of waking up in the bed on my own. I'm, I'm. Do you know what I mean? I started seeing these, these things that I'm like, that wasn't me. No, three, four years ago, it wasn't because it was more comfortable. I was just tired of being on my own. I'm like, why am I always on my own? My wife's down in New York working every day. I'm up in the mountains getting beat up. Is this not? Was this not supposed to improve my life? You know what I mean? Mm. Well, that that was the the little conversations going on in my head, and then. The and the lead fight. I'm like, this is the biggest Irish fight in years. If I can't get up for this, why, what, what am I doing here? And my trainer was the one who pulled me and says, John, look, my training camp, we were training and sparring and things just weren't going right. It just, nothing was, it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel natural. And he said, me, said, do you think, do you think you don't have it anymore? And I says, no, Harry, I know I don't. And he grabbed me and he hugged me and he says, look, kid, stop it. I can't take the punches for you. He says, and I'm telling you now, when you say you're you're done, they're going to be calling you to come back. Be sure, make up your mind. And when you're done, stay done. And I, and I did. And he was right, you know? Because now I'm able to have a conversation with you. I'm not uh, I'm not talking. Well, I hope I'm understandable anyway. <laughs> no, absolutely. And it sounds like Harry, did you say his name was? That yeah, was Harry great. Kate. Yeah, that was a great bit of um, guidance from him at that moment. Uh, well, he he was my trainer for the majority of my professional career, and uh, you have a you have a bond, you know. Mm. I wouldn't say like a father figure because my dad was there too. But this is a guy that when you come back from a round, he's got sixty seconds to give you information, to protect you more, and help you succeed. And you so you don't question anything he's telling you. There's just that. And even he would look at me and I would know exactly what he said. Be like, yeah, I know, I know, Harry, I know. Left my hand. Don't be doing this. Don't be doing that. I don't know. It was like, that's the, the bond that you have, you know? And uh, mm. for him to turn around and say that to me. And no, I mean, that no, that was 10% of the, of the figure that I would have been getting paid that he wasn't getting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and after I made that announcement, yeah, my phone did ring. My, my, my phone rang for quite some time. Ah, oh, you're not done. You know you can. You know you still have it. You have this. People tell me. People tell. I'm like, wow. You think I ha- I still have it? 
yeah, John, no, look at you, man. You're young. You still have it. You can do it. And I'm like, wow, I never knew that. Wow, I need you to tell me that I still have it. <laughs> that's 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 great, you know. Yeah. Just a cash cow, you know. <laughs> that, mm. That's a, that, that's what I ended up feeling like, you know. Yeah. And so then, um, acting. You you became an actor. How how did that? How did that happen? How, I would how disagree you with you. I would disagree with you there, but I'm still trying <laughs> at it. I'm still trying away. I wouldn't you've say I'm an actor, but uh, you've definitely done enough to consider yourself an actor. You've, you've uh, been on stage a bunch of times. You've been on screen a bunch of times. If oh, anyone looks you. at your IMDb, you've got a, a fair number of credits on there. You can uh, 100% call yourself an actor. Well, cheers for that. But uh, do you know what? What's funny about the with the acting? It was an ex-boxer that that introduced me to it. That I always. Growing up, like I don't get me wrong, I loved movies. I always liked like the idea of being an actor. And I mean, if there was any chance of being involved in something, like there was no drama club that that in my circles when I was growing up. And I know that, um, that there probably was somewhere to, to be found out. But I, I was, I was in a sports mind. You know, I was boxing, and that was hitting. Then when I started a boxing pro, you'd hear a few little things come up. Oh, can I think of getting involved with this? And I'd be like, wow. That sounds really interesting. I'd love to actually get involved with, with learning lines and acting and just just trying to trying to find out if, if I could do it or, or or if I'd be capable of doing it and stuff like that. But then when you're actively you know, doing something and I was boxing, I'm like anytime you hear about fighters getting beaten, losing, is that they were always in some kind of they were always you know dictating their time to something else rather than focusing on the job at hand, you know. So once I packed on the boxing, Seamus McDonough called me up and says hey John I hope you're okay he was just checking to make sure because it came out of the blue the retirement you no know, people were worried that I have a brain a brain problem or you know, like a brain scan or something come up mm. and stuff like that and thankfully no physically you no know, everything's okay you know and uh, I said no I, I, I says I'm grand I says I just I, I, I think my, my heart and soul's just not on it no more and, and he says look we're working on something would you be interested in I says definitely. I jumped at it, and uh, that happened. That actually, in the March, that March when I was supposed to be fighting Andy Lee, I was on a stage playing a <laughs> an Irish American fighter. And do you know what the the feeling of of whenever that curtain comes up and the light comes on you, it's so funny because looking back at it, it reminds me when I was in St Mary's Boxing Club, and I was standing with a referee holding my hand, and I was seven years of age wearing wet shirt and shorts and shoes that weren't weren't mine and everybody looking at me and that's the exact same way the play started i'm standing in the middle of the ring and i start telling people about this guy's life that i was betraying and i'm like wow this is this is familiar this feels this feels intimidating this feels terrifying <laughs> i'm like wow i i want to do this this is this is unbelievable and it's amazing the I wasn't going to get punched in the face. Now we did some choreographed fighting scenes and stuff like that, which were which was well done. But there was this other element, this other feeling of oh my god, what I'm shaking. Why am I shaking? Why that this is wow. There was just this different. I don't know what the word is for. I wouldn't say fear, but just this wow. I, I love that kind of conflict on myself I don't know it was wow and luckily funny enough I had my mommy who never 
she always seen my she's seen my fights on TV, but I'm sure she watched them through a clothes no, or, or through no closed fingers or whatever. But I always said, I'm going to get you seeing me fight the Madison Square Garden yet. And, when, and she just landed from the airport literally a few hours before I was to go on stage. I had my friend collect her and drive her to the theater. And when she went down and sat down, Grania was sitting there. And my was like, what's going on? And Grania's like, look, oh, just, just, just sit and wait. Because nobody knew what it was. No. <laughs> Because even Grania didn't even know. Like we knew it was a, a play about boxing, but they didn't realize that when, whenever the lights go on, there's a boxing ring right there, and I'm right in the middle of it, talking to the audience. That's like, what? <laughs> That's absolutely, you know? and it's mad that that was happening at the time that the Andy Lee fight was supposed to be happening. I didn't realize it was that quick. Yeah, I mean, it was that close. <laughs> it was that close after, because Andy actually fought an opponent that me and him both fought in the amateurs called Craig McCune, a Scotchman who was training out in L.A. along with Freddie Roach. And Craig McEwen was winning. And Andy right. Lee caught him in the, uh, caught him in the second or, or the, the second last or, or last round. And I think he stopped him. So we thought Andy was having a bad night at the office. You know, right. it looked like Craig McEwen was going to win. But while they were doing that, I was trying to be an actor <laughs> in New York <laughs> at a wee stage. They're a whole, just a whole different, uh, just a whole different, buzz but exactly the same buzz if you know what i mean it was just wow it was brilliant yeah and that play was called kid shamrock right yes yeah it was uh, directed by jimmy smallhorn so right. it was uh who, who actually is living back in dublin now he's he's been working for, uh, fairly uh he's been very busy in dublin on a lot of different tv and stuff like that i think he's been doing right he's doing a lot of writing and things like that as well you know right well, one thing I'm curious to ask you, John, like you, uh, and I'm sure you're told this a lot, but you are a very striking man. Like to, to anyone uh, listening who doesn't know what John looks like, I don't want to embarrass you by complimenting your appearance too much, but you don't look like a bloke who spent half his life getting punched in the face, put it that way. Well, that's because I was an ugly child. The punches <laughs> did something right. <laughs> my mommy hits me when I say that she says you weren't that ugly you were a beautiful child <laughs> but it's it definitely kind of makes sense like uh, obviously your your appearance is a factor in acting you know as much as people might not want to admit it sometimes it's obviously a pretty huge factor so it kind of makes sense that you would, that you would see it as an that would be one aspect that would make you think yeah I could do that you know I've already got a bit of a profile and I'd probably look pretty good on screen. And, you know, where well, those... That, co- uh, that was said to me later, you know, and because it's like, I, I, I always looked at it like this. I always was, I always looked at it like, well, the guys that fought in Madison Square Garden didn't start there. So the guys that are on TV didn't start there. The guys in Hollywood, you know what I mean? There, there's a journey. And it's like, you have to, you have to earn your stripes, you know? I, I, I don't know why. That's just what I always thought. I'm like, I, I gotta find myself a classroom somewhere to see it, even if, if I even like it. Because I had people coming up to me, you know, and they're and they're what lit, they're mid mid lit twenties. Oh, I want to be a fighter. I want to get back now. Right? I want to. I want to get on the ring. I want to do this. It's like, how old are you? Oh, I'm 25. I'm 20. Because you're you're a bit no, you're a bit old. Like, but, but, and usually when people would ask me about. No, oh, I want to be a fighter. What do you have any advice? I'm like, yeah, get yourself into a gym and start training and start training five, six times a week and start sparring. And then the days you have bad days, make sure you're back the next day again. And then mm-hmm. tell me if you want to be a boxer, you know? 
And I'm thinking acting was the same way. Go to your classes, go learn your lines. Try if I could learn lines, you know. And if they if they learn that, and I've always heard what I remember being asked questions. Oh, you have to know the right questions. You have to know the right questions. So whenever I started doing this, trying to be an, an acting thing, and knowing you're meeting maybe sometimes you mean a manager or an agent or something like that. And well, what do you want to do and what do you want to be? And I'm like, going, what do you mean what? I just want to. I want to work at something where I'm not getting punched in the face, or I'm lifting things up and down. I, I, I want to, <laughs> you know. Well, I'd love to be on a stage or in front of a camera, working, mm. doing something. I says I, I would love to learn more about doing that. And whenever that opportunity arises, I jump at it and I make the most of it. And you know yourself, it's 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 a tough it's it's a tough business. I mean, I just I just booked a gig. There at the weekend. Daddy. It's on a short movie next week. Uh, it's a short, sort of. It was uh, a guy, George Heslin. He was the founder of Origin uh, uh, Theatre Festival and stuff like that, which brought Irish plays and playwrights and actors over to New York. They helped the New York stage. He's now running an, the Irish Centre in Queens here as well. And he reached out to me and says, John, I got a couple of students shooting a, a just a, do you mind if I give them their email? Give me an email, get talking to them. Boom. Yeah, John, now we got to do the whole COVID test and stuff like that. But mm. it's like, there we go. And it's a little paid gig too, and it's great. Great. Who are you playing in that? I'm playing Death. You're playing Death? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a, it's, it's, it's a small scene, but then there's no such thing as they say, but it's a nice role. It's, 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 uh, it's meaningful for the story. It fits and it's got a, it's got a, uh, if I do it correctly, it, it'll have a, a lasting effect on anyone that sees it you know yeah, and I, i'm looking forward to it but it's nice you get them little them little projects all of a sudden pff, the wee light goes on again the butterflies start going and it's like oh here we go you know <laughs> I, yeah i've i found a little uh a clip of you of you acting i think it i think it's a show reel it's like you uh, kind of in a stable uh like an irish scene involving oh like, shit hands yeah. and stuff outside and it really struck me i was like you had a real directness that I thought was great. Like, and it kind of made me think it makes sense that you as a former fighter would have that. Like there's no kind of like messing around. You were kind of eyeballing the guy in the scene with you and you, it felt very present, you know? Right. Yeah. And I thought that was class. Oh, cheers, man. I'm looking forward to seeing more. I'm lo- Hopefully I can uh, see the, the film you've done with Colin Broderick soon. Yeah. Well, uh, whenever, whenever we get that, I figure out whenever these festivals or whatnot are available for people to see and, and they're available not just in America and, and in Ireland and things like that. I mean, uh, as I say, we're all learning here on the hub, you know, how this, this new thing is going. Like, But it's, I, I don't know. I, I find it hard to explain. It, it, I'm excited just talking to you about it right now. And that's the way I used to feel about boxing. You know what I'm saying? Just, just telling you, but I've got a little role and a little short. It's a student film, but I'm like, woohoo! I mean, this is great. <laughs> do, do you know what's so kind of great to hear about that is, I think the the way that you became jaded with boxing. Yes, I think sometimes actors experience that, who were, you know, doing acting at the same time that you were doing boxing from like a young age. Yeah. to maybe the age of 30 or so and and they're feeling that kind of malaise and, and a bit jaded at that yeah. point 
and I like I I've, as I've talked about on this podcast before, I've had moments like that myself, especially when you're out of work, you know, not not so much when you're doing the work, but like the kind of in between parts can get really 100 percent. I can I can I can see that. All right. Yeah. But it's so it's kind of great to hear like you who took it up in your early 30s are full of that enthusiasm and full of that passion for it the way anyone should be when they when you know well you've been doing it a while now a good while but you know it's it's brilliant to see that you've got that but i i wanted to ask you about um your time with robert de niro because uh as um listeners who don't know john's story won't be aware uh you worked with robert de niro uh kind of helping him in the boxing capacity and that led to an acting part right yes it did yeah uh I got a, a phone call from a, a, a mutual friend who was at dinner with Mr. De Niro's uh, a lawyer or attorney or whatever, and uh, the subject came up that they were looking for a boxing trainer. Um, Tom Hauser, who's a writer, he, he writes uh, books a lot about boxing, but he's he's written all our, he's written works of fiction and stuff too, but he. He was very instrumental in, in, in my career and stuff like that. Like he used to sit in the change room on Muhammad Ali before he went for Muhammad Ali would fight, and then all of a sudden he used to sit in my change rooms too and write down whatever whatever writers do, you know. And he dropped my name, and so I got a phone call. John, look, it's Tom here. Uh, and my well, and the other manager Craig Hamill, he was the same. He's look, you only get a phone call. It's probably a withheld number, but answer it. Because I, I, I'm terrible. If I see a number and I don't recognize it, I don't answer it. Let it go to, it's important. You'll leave a voice message and I'll call you back. You know, uh, He says, no, look, just answer it. What is it? Look, a, 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 a lawyer friend's got an actor. He needs a trainer. Uh, and he's probably going to reach out to you. So I was like, okay, I'll, this must be him. I thought it was the, the lawyer. And it's like, hi, is this John Dully? I'm like, yeah, this is, this is John. Hi, it's uh, Bob. I'm like, Bob? Yeah, 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 Bob, Bob, Bobby De Niro. I, I was told that you were expecting my call. I'm like, uh, oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, Bob. <laughs> um, so uh, what an ambush. I, yeah, I mean, it was, kind of, it kind of cool because I got to go meet him. Well, I was, I was still thinking it was a wind up. To be quite honest with you, I said someone's, someone's got it on for me here. But no, I went down to Greenwich, down to his offices. We had a cup of tea. We talked, and it was for uh, the fight grudge match that he plays a, a, an age fighter uh, with uh, Sylvester Stallone, and uh, he just wanted to get back into the gym and do, do a bit of punching and stuff like that again, hit the bag, hit the pads, and things like that, you know. And uh, I got, uh, oh, it ended up anyway. He called me up and hired me, and uh, I got in touch with a stunt coordinator. And he told me what he wanted because. Stage, no, stage fighting and real fighting are nothing the same. They're, they're, no, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, I just had a friend of mine who, with the same stunt coordinator, uh, played uh, Big Henry Cooper and uh, a night in, uh, uh, one night in Miami. It's mm. about uh, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. Uh, I forget the name of the other guys, but it's like, it's a, a made up night where they just happen to meet each other. But this guy plays Henry Cooper, and there's highlights of Henry Cooper fighting Muhammad Ali and, and whatnot. And he was interviewed about the whole experience. And he says, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the ring, and I'm throwing. And the guys tell me, no, I got to 
I got to swing my right hand around. I'm like, you don't throw a right hand like that. And he says, it was explained to me. No, but for the camera, it looks like this. So mm. after, oh, and you be told that. So I remember then doing it going, look, this is going to look awful. This is terrible. And they says, come around and look at the TV. When you go around, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, that looks mm. like I'm really hitting that guy. It's, mm. no, it's an art in itself, you know? So the stunt coordinator, uh, came to New York then after me working with uh, De Niro for about two or three weeks and he told me they work on certain things and he was worried because usually when you get a trainer on they try to teach you boxing proper boxing which isn't because he wrote the fight scene he wants he wants De Niro tra- trained it a certain way do you know what I mean they suit the so when he comes in he takes De Niro on the pads and after that really turns around he goes hey Dolly well, he says you did a great job and I was really, he says yeah so I ended up the, the training camp with De Niro went on for another three weeks because shooting was getting put off and in that three weeks then this production company lands the producers were not about uh, Hands of Stone and me and De Niro were already talking about Roberto Duran because Ken Buchanan lost his title day Roberto Duran if you didn't know Ken Buchanan's a Scotchman won the world title in Puerto Rico anyway my dad was a sparring partner at Ken Buchanan's and Shirley Nash my former trainer beat uh, can be kind of the European uh, title way back in the 70s. So the stone guy goes, Here, I've got Can be and this guy, look, he works with Bob, he's great, he knows him. Uh, we've already got somebody. So that was back in like March, April. Five months later, I get a phone call. I was like, Hi, how you doing? Hey, John, it's uh, Bob. Bob? Yeah, Bobby De Niro. Oh, Bob, how you doing? And uh, they're down in uh, Panama shooting a movie and the guy playing Ken Buchanan pulled out and we're wondering would you be interested in doing the role I nearly crashed the car I had to pull the car over <laughs> I says let me think about it and it was so funny because Gronje was we were going to the YMCA to the gym they swum and they didn't know they train or whatever I pull over and Gronje's reading the match she looks over at me and she mouths oh, is that Bob yeah, and I'm like going yeah I had him on speaker I said, let me hold, hold on a second, Bob. And I said, let me think about it here. And I looked, I said, she looked at me. And I was like, yes, yes, I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so, it was, it was so weird. And then all of a sudden, then, what, uh, it was December. I, I was down there for three weeks. It's on, the, it's on the movie, like what? I think it's like two minutes. It's one of the best fight scenes in, in the movie. And I'm very proud of it because some of the, one of the rounds, he actually hits me and knocks my mouthpiece out. But in reality, he never even laid a glove on me. But it looks spectacular on the screen. It was uh, Edgar Ramirez who played Robert De Niro, or played uh, Roberto Duran. Sorry, I mean it was it was a, a great experience. And then sitting for the press conference and having Robert De Niro beside you doing his scene. He, this can I can I keep talking about this a second? Absolutely, this is amazing. Do, Carry on. Do you, do you see the first scene that we shot in Panama? It was at the Panama Canal, right? Now, you wouldn't know that because it's inside, but it's a big big room where they're having the press conference for the Roberto Duran, Ken Buchanan, more title fight at Madison Square Garden. It was all This was all filmed down in Panama. And we're actually at the Panama Canal. There was a building beside it where they were shooting this. So we were doing this scene, and it was late in the evening. And uh, De Niro plays Ray Arcel who just came out of retirement, they train Roberto Duran, and this is why he's training Roberto Duran, because there's no other fighter just quite like him, and he's got this lovely monologue that he's that he's going to you know, tell the world why he got back involved boxing, and he must, he, he does it, 
and it was a long day as it was, but he does it. And I, I, I don't know how many times, but he's done it a good few times. And you can see that it's, it's about 12 o'clock at night. Everybody's getting tired. Everybody's wanting to go home. I'm high as a kite. I'm just sitting there going, I'm sitting beside Robert De Niro in a Hollywood movie. This is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, me and Edgar Ramirez, or that's it, the, the director says, uh, Jonathan Jabagowitz was like, here, do some ad-libbing. I'm like, what? Ad-lib? No, no, no problem, big man. I'll do some fucking ad-libbing for you. <laughs> hey, me and Hummer ad-libbing, and then they're getting ready for the hero to, to do this scene. So he does it, and he does it perfect, right? And uh, everybody, you know, it's like, okay. And uh, the director goes, we got it. And everyone cheers. Yay! They're all clapping and all, and listen, they're all cheering. They're like, wow, it's like a great end of the day. And then all of a sudden, silence, and Jonathan, the director, is going, quiet, everybody, quiet, everyone. And I look around, and there's De Niro with his hand up. And Jonathan goes, what's wrong, Bob? You okay? And he doesn't say nothing. De Niro doesn't say a thing. And the director goes, do you want, you want to shoot one more? And Bob just, the way, the way De Niro does with a nod to the head with a fist, that's what he does. And you can just hear the, oh. <laughs> no, because ha- everyone had to get set up again. But he does it again. And he does it even better. Mm. And then after, whenever we're getting all, no, dressed down and I'm standing out in the car park waiting for the car to take me. This always reminds me of like the commitments because all of a sudden an Escalade pulls up and the window comes down and it's Robert De Niro and he, he leans out. This was the very first scene that I ever shot. I was there for like a day, but it's the first time I've seen him. He leans out. He goes, John, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate this. And I'm looking around like no one's no one's near me. No one's nobody. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, not a problem, but no, this is great. This is great. And I says, by the way, great, great. Uh, that was fantastic to watch. Great scene. He says, yeah, yeah. He says, I, I could tell everybody was getting tired. You know, he says, but you just can't have one. You got to have two. He says, you need, because sometimes it just doesn't look right when they're, they're editing it together, you know? And I'm mm-hmm. like, wow, what a pro. Just yeah. make sure and get two in the can. He says, you need, you need two. One's not enough, you know? <laughs> I was like, wow. And then he <laughs> drove away again. I'm like going, really? Nobody's seen that? <laughs> <laughs> And you know, obviously, he's so legendary. One of my favorite actors of all time. I'd say a lot of actors be the same. Um, was there anything, you know, about his kind of the way he approached it on set, other than what the story you just told? Like, did he just kind of seem like any other actor, except he was Robert De Niro and he was brilliant? Or was there anything unusual about the way he? No. Do you know what? Whenever the only one thing I could say that I noticed about. You wouldn't know he was there. He was very quiet. Does mm. no no drums, no banging, no shouting, no nothing. He just he came in, did his work, and then he left. And it was mm. just effort. Like it was like he knew it, and, and he, I don't know. No, that's that's why I don't know. Like why was that's just going off topic. Like but no, people are all under the loud mouth in the room. You know, it's like the loud guy. Who's making the noise? Oh, there he is. Yay. Oh, it's like, well, oh, that was the person that used to be ignored because they're so loud because they're trying to convince themselves. Mm. It's the quiet guy in the corner you need to watch out for. You know, yeah. I was always on to that. And he, this, and he's, and he is, he's very shy. And I have no way you, you hear the bad stories and this and that and whatnot. No, I have no telling you, he's a gentleman. 
He was mm. so, so sound. He was just such a, a great guy to be around. We went out and had dinner one night. Um, I, I was friendly with his assistant and, and the stunt guy who I, I am still in touch with as well. Um, we, we, uh, we, we all went out and had a food together in, in, in uh, Panama and whatnot. And it was just like, wow, I'm like, this is, this is surreal. And, and there was no, oh, let's get photographs. Let's no, it was like, I'm sitting there and we're having conversations about everything and anything. And it's like, holy shit, never would I believe I'd be sitting down here yeah. having a meal in Panama, shooting a movie with Robert De Niro. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. Uh, it was pretty cool. So it was. Um... I, obviously, uh, just a, a last thing on Robert De Niro. Like he's obviously one of his most famous roles is Raging Bull, and it's often yeah. said that you know he trained so hard for that. I think Jake Lamotta said he could have been a middleweight. He could like he could have been a challenger for the title. Apparently, mm. uh, around yeah. that time. So did he in your chats with him like over dinner and stuff? Did he show that he was really into boxing or? It was, do you know what? Even whenever we were working out and I was holding the pads for him and we'd be working on certain combinations and and, and he brought it up because you know yourself, you're in there to do a job. I wasn't looking at him as Robert. I was looking at him, this is a a trainer. I'm a trainer and I'm just training him how to do the basics of boxing and being professional about it. And then all of a sudden he'd start asking me what I'd be doing and stuff. And then he, he was saying it and we were throwing the left hook and he said to me, he says, you know, he says, when I was shooting, whenever I was shooting, uh, I don't know, he says, uh, Jake LaMotta, no, Raging Bull. And I'm like, really? You don't think I know Jake? <laughs> you were Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull? No, I'm inside like that, fireworks. But I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, I've seen it. Amazing, amazing. He says, I remember doing the pads. He says, and even Jake says, wow, you got a good left hook. And the way he was doing it was just a complete, like a boxer. Because mm. when I first met him too, Hello, John. He was up. He stood upright. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Very polite. You see, after the, the six weeks of working with him, all of a sudden, the the chins down, the shoulders are forward, just little things. Where no, like and uses that uh, about the whole directness. Mm. About no, that I showed whatever yeah. on the on the camera. I didn't know that, but I started understanding what you mean because. As I said, I did some acting classes and stuff like that. And one of the teachers says that to me, you need to learn to relax. And I was like, I'm relaxing. And, and she was like, no, you're not. And I'm like, I'm I'm, re- I'm getting angry now. I'm like, I am. I'm relaxed. I'm, <laughs> I'm re-. And she says, John, were you an American footballer when you were, what, did you play sports? I says, I was a professional boxer. And she's like, oh, that's it. She puts her, her palm on my forehead, pushes me back, pulls my hip forward. Boom, all of a sudden, sit there. You're in your space. She says, you look like you were ready to go through a brick wall. She says, relax. No, you're relaxed. De Niro showed this. It just changed over the couple of weeks. We're all of a sudden being the upright type to this little, you'd sort of look at him. Wow, he looks like he could handle himself. Mm. And it was just so cool to see them changes. And then they see him playing this older man in Hands of Stone, uh, who was a, an accountant. He was a... He did taxes. There was a boxing trainer. And I'm like going, and De Niro looked older. And I don't get, like, he's what, 60, 70 now? Back then he was in his 60s. But he plays older again for Hands of Stone. Like, and I'm like, oh my God, just to see the whole, the way he moved and the, no, the way he walked, the way he talked. I was like, holy shit. It's just fascinating to see that change you know, right before your eyes. Like, un- yeah. unbelievable. And, um, 
I'd like to maybe uh, close out with to hear more. You've mentioned it earlier on, but uh, just to hear more about the film that you have coming out and the work that you've done with Colin Broderick, which I gather is like been a big part of your time as an actor. Um, yeah. So um, what was the first one you did with Colin? The first movie we did uh, was uh, called Emerald City. It was his first, my first, basically, uh, about a group of construction workers here in New York. Uh, it's kind of loosely based on, on Colin's life as well. You know, that's, that's, that's what he, whenever he moved to New York back in 87, that's the lifestyle that he, that he kind of was on the carpentry, um, working hard, go to the bar, stay in the bar, you know, stuff like that there. And basically how that, uh, it's that journey, no, that's had its time and it's gone. It's not like that no more, but there's still people walking around today that still think it's here. You know, they kind of fall into them ways, them ways of life. And it's not so much about that. No, it's, a, it's about loneliness and you no know, depression and being being an immigrant. You know what I mean? No, the, no, your new home, your home, you're Irish, but you live in New York. New York's your home. It's not Ireland anymore, even though you say it's Ireland. You know, that kind of way. Um, that was the first movie, Emerald City, which is you're able to watch on it's for, uh, free on YouTube. So it is. Oh, brilliant. So it is, and it's a. Uh, I think it's it, it's been more surprising because we're still getting, I reckon, uh, at least a week, a thousand views a week still on, on YouTube. And it's been all pro uh, promotions done basically through Colin himself and, and you know, the actors that have been involved in it, just sh sharing it and, and posting it around. And we've got some great feedback on it. Uh, that, nice. was a, well, that was a joy. I, I did some two plays before that with Colin as well up in the Bronx. And, and one in Manhattan as well, which are, again, all loosely around his time and his experiences in life, you know, uh, construction workers, you know, living up in the Bronx, things like that there, uh, you know, depression, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, families, wives, kids, stuff like that there. And A Bend in the River is uh, kind of like, a, a, as I say, a, a, a mirror image of uh, Collins where it's about a writer, Matt Donnelly, who returns home to Ireland after being away for 25 years he, he he left his home went to new york uh wrote a very successful novel but uh he's back he's back in his home home village and a lot of things that he ran away from uh are still within there or still still there in some form or fashion you know there's a lot of things that he never dealt with that are just sort of waiting for him to come back um basically it's about his journey and trying to get out of writer's block and things like that you know Hmm. well they sound brilliant uh look for i'll definitely check out emerald city and uh like i said i look forward to being able to see bend in the river thank you well thanks so much uh for sharing your story john it's uh it's just yeah jesus it's get, get on man uh, we were kind of all over the place there but uh there's like a tarantino moving on <laughs> <laughs> but we're alive at the end thank god for that <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, pleasure pleasure chatting you don't know uh definitely that was my interview with john i hope you enjoyed it if you have a story like this or know anyone with a story like this i will need all the help i can get finding the most interesting stories possible you can contact me at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com i also have a patreon account if you think this is a good podcast and a worthwhile project I would appreciate any contribution you see fit to give. It'll help me invest more time in the podcast and 
find more interesting stories. That is patreon.com forward slash Pat's podcast. And you can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's podcast. In two weeks time, my guest will be Sally Banks. Sally was a bank manager on Merseyside until her mid 30s when the death of a friend and a cancer diagnosis for her mother convinced her that life was short and she was going to retire from that and commit professionally to her long-held passion for acting. Sally is now a very successful actor. So join me in two weeks to hear all about her story. Thanks for listening. Thank you.